Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about the Halibut people and their world. I'm Glenn Wheeler. In the spring, the Mi'kmaq gathered their belongings and moved to coastal areas where their encampments were more visible and could be found more easily by family and friends who would be traveling the shores and getting together for the summer. The increased visibility also allowed them to keep watch for passers-by and for possible raids by neighboring tribes. Also, by staying on the shores, the Mi'kmaq enjoyed relief from the mosquitoes and black flies, which were kept away by the wind. From Mi'kmaq Spirit. We're coming up to Easter and the opening of the lobster season in western Newfoundland. Sure signs of spring. In the Halibut enrollment process, we're at the end of the beginning. The extended appeal period is about to finish, and action on the litigation front is about to heat up. The most significant litigation is the application to be filed by the Mi'kmaq First Nation Assembly of Newfoundland. MFNAN didn't make the court deadline to file, now it's seeking an extension. The other parties in the case, the Federation of Newfoundland Indians and the federal government, have agreed to the extension. That means the request will likely be granted by the court. MFNEN is represented by Jamie Lickers of the law firm Gowlings. I asked Jamie Lickers about how she expects the litigation to unfold and when we can expect a decision from the federal court. Jamie, uh, can you tell us uh, where you are with the litigation? Yes, uh, definitely. So I, I think the last time that that we spoke, Glenn, we were still in the in the preliminary stages of of sorting out the situation and determining what the best course of action was was to deal with all of these uh, rejections that that applicants have been receiving. And and as you know, there's been numerous extensions for people in terms of their deadlines to file notices of appeal. Um, a further extension was granted, and I understand now that that appeal no, appeals are actually um, due mid-April as opposed to the the previous deadline for the end of March. So there's been quite a bit of uncertainty, but primarily, you know, the bigger question is what happens for those individuals who do not have the right to appeal the decision of the enrollment committee. And this really leaves those individuals with with only one form of recourse, and, and that is to the courts. Um, and I'm not sure if, if you or your listeners are aware, but um, to date there have actually been multiple um, legal actions commenced, and there's been some discussion of, of this in, in the media and on various Facebook pages and whatnot. Um, so things are things are underway. I know we all anticipated that that there would be litigation as as a result of these decisions, and it appears that that is coming to fruition. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of uh, of your litigation, have you decided yet what uh, what form your litigation will take? Would there be named applicants? Would it be a class action? Would the Mi'kmaq First Nation Assembly of Newfoundland be the litigant? Yeah, so there was considerable thought put into all of those questions. 
and you know the, the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of, of Newfoundland is is really the driving force behind this litigation, regardless of of who is is named uh, in in the legal action. The, the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of of Newfoundland is a not for profit organization, so they're not an applicant. Uh, they're not an applicant that was directly affected by one of the decisions of the enrollment committee. So we had some um, strategic legal considerations that had to be dealt with. Ideally, it would have been the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland who would have been named as, as the applicant, because, but because they didn't receive a decision, um, that becomes a, a bit difficult. So, you know, in the end, the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland um, aided us in finding the appropriate representative to to bring our action to the federal court. And right now, the stage that we're at in that process is the, the applicant has been identified and the notice of application has been drafted. Um, because we were involved in discussions with, with the FNI and with the federal government on how to best handle these cases, we we went past our deadline for filing a judicial review application. It's, it's a tight turnaround to file a judicial review application. Um, generally speaking, when an individual challenges a, dis a decision by way of judicial review, they have to file that application within 30 days with the court. Um, but we felt it was more beneficial to have some you know, productive discussions with the federal government and the FNI about handling these cases. And as a result, they consented to, um, to agree to our request for an extension. So um, we've put that request in front of the court. And um, now all we can do is wait for, for the decision on that. Right. So, and your discussions with the federal government and the FNI were purely on this procedural matter about date to file. Were there any substantive discussions about a, an overall uh, resolution of the litigation? Yeah, I think it's a bit premature to to discuss the the substance of of the discussions between um between, you know, the MFNAN's council and and the federal government and FNI's council. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I think the litigation will will proceed, um but the parties are are working together and there's a very cooperative attitude between between council. I think everybody wants to see these issues resolved, and I think they want to see, you know, the right decision reached for for all the parties. You know, the federal government, the FNI, and the applicants—they all are are looking for the same thing here, and that is, you know, certainty and and fairness in terms of of how these applications are going to be evaluated in the future. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like then there'll be one, there'll be a named applicant, someone who you've decided has a has a compelling. A uh, story about their uh, circumstances, and that will be uh, the person's case on which this litigation is fought. Is that correct? That's correct, and and I think it's really important to to keep in mind and and to remind uh, listeners that right now the the litigation is dealing with an individual who was denied on the basis of the self identification criteria. The other applicants who were denied either on um, ancestry basis or on a failure to prove community acceptance, those individuals had the right to appeal their decisions. And from the beginning, we've advised people that if they have the right to appeal, they should file an appeal and really exhaust their legal remedies on that front. So 
the the litigation is dealing with an individual who was rejected on the basis of failing to meet the self-identification criteria. Is, is those are the individuals that do not have any appeal rights. Right. And I suppose depending on what happens with people who do have the right to appeal, there may be more litigation, additional litigation, when those people have gone through the appeal process. It's it's possible, and, and given that multiple actions have been filed in relation to, to the individuals who've already been rejected without a right of appeal, I think it's I think it's fair to say that there's a reasonable possibility that there will be future challenges in relation to those individuals who, who go through the appeal process, uh, particularly if, if that appeal process does not result in you know, people's decisions being being overturned, which we suspect the majority of of the appeals will simply reconfirm the enrollment committee's decision. Um, the appeal master doesn't have the authority or the jurisdiction to consider new evidence. So if the enrollment committee reviewed an applicant's application, um, reviewed all of their evidence and said, no, they failed to meet a particular eligibility criteria, as long as that decision is you know, founded in the, in the evidence and the documents and it's considered a reasonable decision, the appeal master will likely confirm the decision of the enrollment committee. Mm-hmm. How many other uh, 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 sets of litigation are you aware of in addition to yours? I'm aware of two additional pieces of litigation at the moment, um, and, you know, I'm not um, not all that familiar with the details of, of the litigation. I just know that there have been two actions filed elsewhere in the country in relation to, to the membership issues with the Halipu. So you've got an extension. Uh, when, when would you expect to uh, file the application and be in the actual court process? Well, we we don't. I think it's an important clarification. We don't have our extension as of yet. The oh, yes. the parties to the litigation have consented to our request for an extension, but at the end of the day, the court retains the jurisdiction um, and the discretion to make its its own decisions. So, um, you know, the fact that all of the parties consented to to the to the request for an extension is is a good sign, and we're hopeful that the court will will you know, view the discussions that were happening between the parties as, as valuable um, and that they will understand why the application was not filed within the original 30-day time period. So it's difficult to predict how long it will take the court to address our request for an extension of time. Once we get a decision on that, if our request for an extension is granted, we will file our application immediately. Um, one of the requirements when you bring a request to the court for an extension of time is you have to show them that you're ready and willing to proceed expeditiously, and we attached a draft of our application to that request to say we're ready, um, this application will be filed immediately on receipt of your decision, and we're prepared to, to move ahead uh, expeditiously. Right, and the the other parties then, uh, you have your, your named applicant, and the respondents will be the Federation of Newfoundland Indians. And is the federal government there as an intervener, or are they is the are the Fed some way involved as a party to the litigation? They are involved as a party. They are named as a respondent in the application. Do I understand that you will be filing before the federal court to, to have your matter heard in Toronto? Yes, that's correct. And do you have any sense of timelines once uh, once you get the uh, once the court approves of the extension and uh, and you file? Uh, 
what uh, what would the timelines be like after that in terms of uh, when you would have the actual hearing? Mm-hmm. So t- the timelines on judicial review applications actually move fairly quickly. It's meant to be a, sort of an expedited process for resolving issues as opposed to a you know an action in superior court where the timelines are longer. But there is a certain amount of time after we file our application where the respondents um, have to they have to put together their positions and, and respond to the application. Following the exchange of, of those documents, the parties have to produce their affidavits. Judicial review applications are decided on the basis of affidavit evidence. So both parties would, would prepare and file their affidavits with the court, including all of the supporting evidence that goes with the affidavit. The parties then have a further time period to cross-examine the other party's um, affiance to test the evidence that they've that they've put into their affidavits and and the evidence that's attached to the affidavits, um, and that process can take a couple of months just in terms of scheduling and coordinating, and it can be longer depending on the number of affidavits that are produced to support the application. But once the once the affidavits are produced and the cross exam examinations happen on the affidavits the the parties um, put together their evidentiary record for the court, including the transcripts of the examinations. Um, and then it's just a matter of when the court is available to hear the case. So it sounds like then, uh, would it be realistic to think that we would have a decision from the federal court in uh, before the end of 2017? I don't know if it's realistic to expect a decision before the end of 2017. I think an aggressive timetable would see the case argued at the end of 2017, um, but then it it really depends on the workload of the of the court and the judges hearing the case, because they it's very unlikely that they would make a decision immediately after hearing the case. They would probably reserve their decision and deliver it at a later time, which can be months and months later. Mm-hmm. And do we know how many uh, witnesses uh, there would be? It's you'll have at least uh, you'll have the affidavit witnesses and the people whose affidavits they are. Uh, will likely be cross-examined, you, and I guess you will have at least one affiant because you have your applicant. Do you expect to have um, uh, more than one person giving affidavit evidence uh, in, in your case? Possibly, although we haven't turned our mind to finalizing our, our evidence list at, at this point. It's it's quite early in the process. Um, you know, Before we see the position that, that the respondents are going to take, it's, it's difficult to conceptualize the type of evidence that we might need to support our case. You're quite right. Uh, definitely, there will be an affidavit from, from the applicant um, himself, and it may be necessary to have some supporting affidavits from other people who are familiar with the process and how the enrollment process was handled. Yes, and can you say who your uh, who your named applicant uh, is? Yes, so our named applicant is is Dave Wells, who is the chairman of the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland, and uh, Mr. Wells has not been shy in communicating the fact that he too was was rejected from band membership, um, specifically on the basis that he failed to meet the self identification criteria. I know it's early in the game, and um, do you have a sense uh, in talking to um, the F&I and the feds what their case will be, or maybe you 
you can anticipate what it is. Do you have a, a gut feeling at this point uh, about your chances before the federal court? Well, I think we can anticipate generally what the response is going to be from the federal government and from the FNI, uh, particularly in light of the positions that they took on the House and the Foster matters a few years back. Uh, and I don't think they have a choice but to take the position that, in their view, the, the process was fair and, and the decisions reached were reasonable. Um, it, they had to have been of that view when they started in this process and it, likely even when they negotiated the supplemental agreement. I don't think there's there's any suggestion by the parties that there were there was an ill intention on the part of the FNI or the federal government when they negotiated the supplemental agreement, but I think there were some unforeseen consequences as a result of the way that the modified criteria was applied to applicants that has resulted in so many unfair decisions. Um, but, you know, we expect them to defend their process in, in the federal court, and, and we expect them to argue that the decisions were reasonable. And uh, you, of course, will be uh, arguing otherwise and about the arbitrariness, I guess, of the decision-making and the um, the basis on which the people were, uh, the decisions were rendered and um, the lack of the right to appeal. Exactly. And we've been successful with those arguments in the past. We were successful on the House and Foster cases on exactly that basis, that, you know, despite the intentions and, and the, the overwhelming number of applications that the Enrollment Committee had to deal with, that can't be the basis for denying individuals procedural fairness when you're talking about something as important as, as band membership and Indian status. Jamie, thank you very much, and good luck. My pleasure. Thanks, Glenn. Jamie Lickers of the law firm Gowlings, counsel for the Mi'kmaq First Nation Assembly of Newfoundland. Before we go, events of interest to listeners in the Stephenville and Stephenville Crossing area. All new teachings with Andrea and Brett Colfer. On Good Friday, April 14th in Stephenville Crossing, there is a sunrise ceremony at 7.30 a.m., sweat lodge at 9, and a feast at noon at the Stephenville Crossing Fire Hall. On Saturday, April 15th in Stephenville at the YMCA, a talking circle from 12.30 to 4.30. Teachings by Andrea and Brett and a chance to ask questions. All welcome, no registration required. And that's it for the show. Thanks to Allison Baker for assistance here in the studio. Thanks also to Halibut artist Marcus Goss for permission to use Celebration Time. Follow us on Twitter at Mi'kmaq Matters, that's M-I-Q-M-A-Q Matters. Check us out online, mi'kmaq-matters.blogspot.ca. Listen on SoundCloud or subscribe on iTunes. This is Glenn Wheeler. Till next time.